right. Welcome back to Travel Nuggets. I'm Christine Goss, and our guest today is Charles Davidson, who is one of the most well-traveled people I know. And uh, we tried to get his wife to join. Um, combined, we think they've been to 75% of the world. Um, so Charles, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I actually asked Charles to suggest a spot that he wanted to talk about. And when he suggested Andorra, it caught my eye because I, I didn't expect it. Um, so I'll turn it over to you now. Why, Charles, did you guys, you and your wife, Abby, pick Andorra as part of your vacation plans? Well, just to, as a quick uh, starting off correction, we, um, we haven't been to 75% of the world. We've, I've been to 64 countries, and I think together um, we've been to like 75 unique countries, but not 75%. I didn't want you to think we were more traveled than we were. Um, <laughs> it's still a lot. Yeah, still a lot. Uh, we chose Andorra, well, I guess really because I'm kind of on a lifelong mission to um, at least step foot in uh, in every country. And Andorra was one of those fun micro states that I was like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to have a few days. We were meeting our friends in Barcelona for a long road trip along the Spanish coast um, into Portugal. And I just kind of thought it would be fun to see a new place while we were waiting on them to get there. And we really didn't know what to expect. Um, so we just, we flew into Barcelona and rented a car and um, drove out to Andorra and got there and we were really just blown away. So Andorra is, when you Google it, what pops up is, is Andorra a city or a country? So it is a country and yeah. it's embedded in Spain um, in the Pyrenees. So you've told me that geography is kind of your thing. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> explain to us, like set the scene for us. What is Andorra like? Yeah, so it's actually it actually straddles the line between Spain, Spain and, and France. Um, it is <laughs> like when you arrive, I think we both were really flabbergasted at how much like a mountain kingdom it feels like. It's situated with within mountains and within valleys and just everywhere you are in the country is like yet another beautiful um, scene. And it's it's so widely varied everywhere that you go. It just it it never it never gets old. And you feel like you can drive around all day and you know, in some ways like see the whole place. Um once you're in it, it's it's a little bit bigger than you expect. It takes a little bit longer to get out than we thought. Um, but it offers an experience that is genuinely not Spanish and genuinely not French. Like it's it's Andorran and uh, we just, you know, we spent a few days there kind of discovering what that meant. Well, I definitely want to hear what that meant. But first, I wanted to explain, you said it's hard to get in and out of. I actually watched a video on this. Because Andorra is mainly mountains, uh, there's only two roads that go in. There's no airport. So it actually is hard to get into. Um, yeah. There's only two real entrances there. But yeah, what is Andorran? Well, so... I guess it's kind of first defined by the unique, uh, the uniqueness of the government. It is, I think it's called a biarchy, I believe, because it's ruled by um, a Spanish bishop and the president of France. And it's basically like two princes uh, who don't live there are actually uh, the rulers of it. And, you know, they, they use the word prince, even though one of them is a Spanish president. Um, and then it's the only, uh, unless I'm mistaken, it's the only country in the world whose official languages Catalan. Um, even though everybody, you know, speaks English like a lot of other places in Western Europe, 
they and and they also speak Spanish and French, uh, depending on who you're talking to. Um, it's it the, the official language is Catalan, and a lot of other things are are highly unique as well, like the um, the the food and the culture and and kind of the the easygoing nature of everybody. Not that people in France and Spain aren't, but um, when you're there, you just feel like you're you're in a different place. So did you? You know, how much interaction did you have with the locals? Uh, describe what you mean by, you know, they're just, are they warm? Yeah. Well, I guess so when I travel, um, most of the travel that I do is in extremely conflicted countries, places that are underdeveloped in a lot of ways regarding infrastructure. And a lot of times you have to really go searching for um, the uniqueness and the vibrancy of a culture that a foreigner can experience. Um, and so I'm really used to, you know, looking up a great place to go and then just arriving and putting myself at the mercy of the locals. And I, it was kind of no different in Andorra and we, you know, we showed up and I think that there, you know, there's obviously a pride like in a lot of other places, um, but also very helpful. And I guess like the, the main, how do I say, like the way to summarize our experience there was the first, um, the first night we got there, it was really, really late and we were starving and we, we wanted to um, go find something to eat. But, you know, a lot of places had shut down and we drove around the city for several minutes looking for a light on. And we found this kind of gastro pub that we pulled up um, in a parking lot, got out, walked up into it. And it was just vibrant. It was like the scene out of Beauty and the Beast, like just like, you know, friendly, happy people everywhere. and we sat down and they asked, you know, what, do, what are you up to? Who are you? Where are you from? And we told them, you know, we were in uh, from the U.S. and we were hungry and it was late. And, and we said, we really want to try Andorran food. And the owner of this small restaurant was just like elated. He was so happy to see us there um, and to be wanting to experience something local. And, you know, even though it was like our only cho choice that night, with the exception of like a hot dog place, um, he just treated us like royalty. Like he, he served these specific, like personally selected um, tastes of different foods. And he, you know, pointed out different things on the menu and he brought them and we just had dish after dish after dish of this wonderfully prepared food along with, you know, fantastic alcohol, beer. Uh, I, I think we had some liquors and then the desserts were phenomenal. And, and we all, you know, all during this had people chatting with us and asking us questions and you know they had all been drinking so everybody was really friendly we had this one older gentleman come up and just like sit at our table and filibuster us for like 10 or 15 minutes and the the owner you know politely um asked him to leave us alone <laughs> but um we just like kicked the doors open uh, out of that place that night uh, and we were just elated that we had had this experience that was the very first thing that we did upon arriving in Andorra and it was it was kind of like the um the perfect start to an amazing vacation in, in Andorra and, and in the eastern Pyrenees in general. So what is you know you you're clear that Andorra is not France not Spanish and we know what each of those cuisines are um and everyone loves them what right. would you describe Andorra can you describe what Andorran food is like? No, I can't. <laughs> like it's really hard <laughs> to differentiate. It's like you just have to go there. Um it's it's not 
it's not like super unique in ways that are just so much different um, than Spanish cuisine or French cuisine, but it, it's like an overlapping, not only of those two cultures, but some of the, like the, the, the local, um, you know, recipes that they hold on to tightly as well as a lot, you know, different immigrant um, flavors layered on top of it. I, um, I can't remember exactly what the influence was, but I knew that there was like some even German influence at this restaurant that we were in. And so um, it's one of those things it's, I'm, I'm actually, you're hard pressed to find me without the ability to describe when I travel, but uh, it's one of those things that like, I just really encourage you to go try it for yourself. Yeah. Well, on that note too, just one thing that struck me is Andorra is a tiny country with an incredibly dense, rich, complex history. It's only 181 square miles, but um, Charlemagne freed, I guess, Andorra from Moorish rule. And then it passed back and forth between the Spanish and the French. And now, you know, you're right, they have this co-principality. So one of the co-princes of Andorra is Macron of France, the president of France. So it is kind of surprising. So, okay, where did you stay? Hotel, B&B, what was that like? So we stayed in a little hotel um, way at the tippity top of a mountain and it was so old and so lovely. And it was like the interior was just lined in beautiful wood and there were multiple fireplaces and all of the little tables in the lobby. I mean, the lobby was like this this gorgeous, tiny, um, how do I say it? Like, it almost felt more like a, a large living room than a hotel lobby. Uh, there was a full bar. All of it was so old. I mean, it must have been built in the late 1800s, I would, I would suspect. Um, we, we drive our car, you know, winding all the way up to the tippity top of this mountain and check in and... Uh, you know, we get to our room, it's, it's fairly austere, which, you know, we, we always, no matter where we go, we always um, stay in, in like low rent hotels because we really emphasize putting our money into experience and into food because, you know, you don't, you don't actually spend that much time in your hotel not sleeping. <laughs> yeah. But to our surprise, even though our room was austere, the place could not have been better. Um, everyone staying there was super overly friendly. People who worked there were um, extremely helpful. The food again was amazing. There was a free full on breakfast. Um, And it felt more like, I guess, like a mountain lodge or a mountain home than it did a hotel. Um, But again, I keep kind of like harking back to this idea that I was like in the same town as uh, Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) Kind of ridiculous, but um, it's what it felt like. Well, that's a great segue, though. Can you describe what the city, the capital of, well, what is the capital of Andorra? Um, I, I believe it's called Andorra de la Vela. Yes, I think that is it as well. Yeah. I know that it is it. I'm looking at it right now. Um, what was, I'm seeing a lot of stone buildings. Can you, and I really like your, that image of the Beauty and the Beast village. It It seems like it's very similar. It's not really a high-rise building city. It's very cozy. Can you describe what the capital is like? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, how do I describe? So have you ever been to Portland, Oregon before? No. It's, um, I kind of noted in Portland, there might be people who disagree with me on this, but I feel like Portland fits very nicely into the mountains. Like it, I think the architects did a really good job of like blending nature and um, or like ur- urbanity, if that's a word. Um, but in Andorra, it's like, it's really hard to, 
um, like you're hard pressed to not feel like you're always in the mountains, even when you're in the city, because everything just kind of blends and becomes one. Um, it's hard to describe where the mountains end and the buildings begin in a lot of ways. Um, but the city itself is also very modern. I mean, there's all, all the modern amenities, parking garages, um, you know, walkable downtown space. Um, a lot of the buildings are fairly new, mixed with a lot of really old buildings. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it actually, for me, being a tourist who probably leans more towards culture, food, art, um, I'm, I'm always more prone to be a tourist within the city. And I can say it's, it's maybe the most unique city in the world in that regard where it, it just blends right into its surroundings, but still has all like the modern comforts and amenities of a, of a modern city. So is it completely surrounded by mountains? Because I can see in pictures, it almost looks like the city is in a bowl. Well, that's kind of like the point of Andorra. Um, yeah, I think they, it was founded with the idea that it's like a heavily guarded kingdom that was in some ways impregnable. Um, so it's, it's, the city proper is located in a valley surrounded by all these massive mountains. But as you know, over time, when it went from being a kingdom to, or I guess a principate or however you would describe it during the time of Charlemagne, um, the city started to expand outward, obviously. And so it crept up the mountains on all sides, but yeah, in some way, like you, you actually have to, when you're entering into Endor de la Vela, it's like you, again, you're like entering through these mountain gates and all of a sudden, like before you is just this, gorgeous city set within the Pyrenees. All right. So you had three days there. Tell yeah. us what you did. Well, um, geez. So we, what did we do? There was so much. The first day, um, <laughs> I think the first day actually after we ate, um, my wife was feeling kind of bad, not because of the food or anything. I think she just had like a cold or something. So I got out and took the rental car and just drove all over the city um, the first thing I'm a, I'm a Catholic. And so the first thing that I did was go to, um, the, I think the oldest church in Andorra, uh, it's called uh, the church of Santa Coloma d'Andorra. And I, I mean, it, it is an old, old church. Like I think the, the nave of the church dates back to like the eighth century or something like that. Like it's <sighs> super old and, um, but still has like some of the original art, like the mosaic, um, what, what is the name for like paintings? Um, frescoes. Yeah. That fresco like still has some of the original, um, frescoes in it. And I, I mean, it, it's just, it was an unbelievable start to that trip for me. Um, and then I kind of worked my way out from there. So, you know, visiting some of the older parts of the city, uh, went to um, like downtown, tried some great restaurants. Uh, let's see, what else did we do? I honestly, like, I just drove. Like, I, I guess I do that a lot as a tourist, to be frank. Like everywhere I go, when it's safe, I'll just get in a car and just drive and, and take it all in. Um, I went back in the afternoon and grabbed Abby. We went to like a locally produced goods store. I remember that stood out. There's this, um, there's this liquor in Andorra. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called, but it's made with like, like hazelnuts or chestnuts or something like this. But it's made in the same house um, that it's been 
being made for like the past, I guess like 300 years. They've like perfected the art of this like Andorran liquor. Um, we drank that and walked around downtown some more and kind of took in what um, like the shopping and the culture and the nightlife has to offer there on the first night. Um, after that, we kind of were ready to venture out. And so the next day we got in the car and just took off through the Pyrenees. Um, I guess it would be like north by north, or sorry, like east by northeast is the, one of the ways out of town through through France. And um, we just kind of drove, like we thought like, okay, we'll go to Toulouse or something like that. Um, but the route to Toulouse was just littered with these small towns and, and this one, uh, Taras, how do you say with a French accent, accent uh, Tarascon sur Ariège. Um, we we stopped and we're just like romanced by this beautiful southern French town that was just so far off the beaten path. You know, it wasn't on the Mediterranean and it wasn't Toulouse and it wasn't in southwest France. It was just in this place that you never really hear about. Um, I guess like north of the Pyrenees or maybe it's still in the Pyrenees actually. Um, but we got out and you know there were there was an old church and an old town square and we went to this um like really typical french restaurant and then we went and like bought out the french bakery and like walked around town eating um baguettes just you know handfuls at a time with cookies and stuff and we found our way to a local bar and just ordered two really basic um, like a beer and wine and sat down and, and just took in the, the surroundings as the sunset. Um, and we were, you know, we're in this valley. Um, we saw another church while we were there and just talked to the locals who again were wildly friendly, but um, it, it was really stark for me because in Andorra and obviously in, in Spain, you know, you can speak some French and, and get by, I'm sorry, some Spanish and get by, which I, I'm pretty good at Spanish but you know, you only had to drive 30 minutes and get into France and all of a sudden no one speaks any Spanish at all. And I know that sounds ignorant, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, you're in France, but it is incredibly stark. And, you know, a lot of times in my travels, language will spill over in ways um, that are either like dialectical or, you know, people cross back and forth over the border. So there's some transition, but I mean, like, the moment we got into France, there was no Spanish at all. And that was really like amazing to me, to be honest. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of, I, there's this great book called a world lit only by fire about the middle ages. And I read that in that period of time, people didn't venture beyond five miles of their home where they were born in their entire lifetime. Uh, So it's almost what you're describing. It's like going back in time you know? And, um, so just to clarify you getting in and out of Andorra to go to France and to Spain there, do you need a passport? Is there any kind of check or was it just seamless in and out? Let's see. Um, there, there was, yeah, there was actually, there was definitely a border. Um, it's EU, right. And what's the, what is the, well, actually, I, I read Andorra uses the euro, but it is not technically part of the EU. Okay. I, I think you might be right. Sorry, you're probably right if you look that up. But is it Schengen, though, like with the passport? I guess it wouldn't be, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, it just, 
usually there is a whole process to get in and out of borders, but it just yeah. seemed like you hopped in the car and drove. But we did have passports and I, and we did get stops okay. like, as we were leaving. And I just can't remember if we got stamped or not. That's what I'm sitting here trying to remember. Huh. You think that it's only been a year I should remember, but, but there definitely was border like at, at both sides. It, it wasn't like, Oh, you know, come on in. We're all the same. It's like, no, you're in Andorra now. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you said you were in Andorra for three days, was it really a sort of a base point where you did these road trips to Spain and France? Did you ever get out into like hiking in the Pyrenees or, or anything like that? No, we, so like it was the base starting point. Cause like the, the vacation was actually through Spain and Portugal. We had three days to be in Andorra and we always get kind of restless. I think when you're in Andorra, if, cause we're not, we're just like, I'm not a big hiker. I was in the army. I was in the boy Scouts. I was in the Navy as well. And like, I've sort of like had my time outside. <laughs> Um, so I just like to stick to the cities and towns. Um, the hiking I'm assuming would just be out of this world. A lot of people will go to Andorra to ski, obviously. And it was not ski season yet, which I think we probably would have done. Um, but as a result, like, you know, having seen the city, we ventured out into Southern France and then on the third day, you know, got up, had a fantastic breakfast um, did our last little bit of sightseeing and then we took off for Barcelona where we were meeting up with our with our friends. Okay, so you um, actually I want you to explain you said you did the quote big C and yeah. I don't know if that's a thing or if it's what you call it. It's, it's <laughs> what I call it, yeah. What, I'm sorry, what? It's just what I call it. I mean, maybe other people <laughs> have done it, but I our route resembled a C, so that's why I said that. Okay, so explain to listeners what was that route. Yeah, I want to pull up my map here just to make sure I don't forget. <laughs> Um, so the idea was we started in Andorra and we went to Barcelona, um, via a lot of tiny Spanish towns. A lot of these towns, like we were not in Spain, we were in Catalonia, like the, the Catalan flag was blazing like you would be driving down the road and they were everywhere and you know we'd get to these tiny towns and hanging over these super old ornate bridges were just massive Catalan um, flags and it, it was like this it, it almost felt like we were in a fourth country on this trip um, and I mean I would like highly recommend, I, so I'm, I'm finishing my PhD uh, in November uh, and I study civil war, independence movements, protest movements. And for me to be able to be right in the middle of this type of scenario yet again, but in a European context was so valuable for me. And I would recommend anybody who's going on a road trip through Spain to definitely hit this area um, to kind of experience what it's like for you know people who are um, the nationality of a country that they, in some ways want to succeed from, but have no ability to. Um, and so we drove through that area. We reached Barcelona. Um, and sorry, what, what was your question that you actually asked? Already what started? was the big sea route? It oh yeah, so we went to, so it was Barcelona. Um, let's see. And then we went down, I guess what's known as E15, like all the way down the Spanish coast to Valencia. Um, and then we kept driving till we got to Granada and we cut up a bit to Seville or Sevilla. Um, 
and then we drove to Lisbon and we finished in Lisbon but all along the way you know we would stay one or two nights in every place that we were in to take it in like our the big like you know big points for us were Barcelona, Granada, and Lisbon um you know seeing flamenco in Granada and seeing the beautiful church churches in Seville I tried to get a haircut in Seville just so I could say I went to a barber in Seville but um his line was too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a guest on uh, frequently. I had him on a couple weeks ago, Rick Antonson, who actually has a, always makes a point of getting a haircut yeah. when he travels because he thinks that's just such a great way to have a real experience. Yo, that's so funny because I do the same thing and I've never <laughs> even like put two and two together with that. He actually wrote a book called Timbuktu for a haircut. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You recommended that to me that, okay, I'm putting that together now. Yeah, no, he's totally right because- it's like that's where culture exists in so many places like even even here in the united states um it plugs you into an action that every human being needs to incorporate into their you know monthly life and it's it's a truly like um untouristy way to see any place that you're in i totally yeah. everyone always thinks it's food like where do the locals go to eat and what but where do they get a haircut you yeah yeah um, going back to what you were saying about the Catalan independence movement, yeah. that is something that I think a lot of us don't really recognize um, or see because there isn't, it doesn't make the news a lot. Uh, and one thing I found, I was just in the Caucasus and um, particularly with uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, going to those yeah. countries back to back. Yeah. I, you, what, you went from Azerbaijan to Armenia? No, no, that's no. not what <laughs> We did in, in hindsight, I didn't realize why we did this until I was there, but we, um, cause somebody else helped me plan this trip, but we went to Azerbaijan and then we had to fly up to Georgia yeah. and then go into Armenia because the borders closed. And yeah, most of us don't realize that between Azerbaijan and Armenia, they are, they are not on good terms Yeah, and being on both sides. Um, when we were in Armenia, they were trying to kind of win us over to their side of the argument and the same in Azerbaijan. And it was sort of like, we were just tourists. We were neutral. We just wanted to take in each country as it was, but yeah. um, they were, they really wanted to get a message across to us. Um, did you find that when you were in that part of Spain that there was sort of a little bit of PR going on? Not really. I mean, I, I didn't have the time to be caught up in that because we were driving through it. Um, it, I think if I had sat down and really, you know, gotten to know the people, I, I just judging by the signals that were being projected publicly, it wouldn't have taken long to hear about it. Um, but I, I just didn't have the time to really engage it. And, and part of me, because I travel in war-torn countries for a living and in my studies in some ways I was like kind of happy to just be a dumb tourist for a week um but I could only imagine that it would be incredibly um interesting uh to hear you know the different opinions and and for it not to be I mean it's, it's not to be taken lightly I mean we're talking about people who want to leave Spain and not to mention the way that Spain the Spanish and, and Spanish government probably feel about that as well um, because it hasn't always been a peaceful rebellion. And so 
uh, I would certainly like to, to learn more and, and, and go back. I mean, Spain is, as a rule, I don't usually travel back to places just because I'm wanting to see more and more of the world. But Spain is one of those places I would go back to a hundred times if I could. Yeah. Actually, on a side note, when I asked Charles to be on the podcast, I asked him to suggest some countries and one of them was Burundi. And if you Google that, it comes up the State Department warning saying, reconsider travel to Burundi. So <laughs> <laughs> in the Congo, I brought up the Congo. In the Congo, so I said, "Well, you know, tra travel nuggets is about giving people travel ideas." <laughs> so, well, I don't know. I would still, I would still recommend those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading it right now. Reconsider travel to Burundi due to crime and political violence. Yeah, so we don't want to encourage anyone to put themselves in harm's way. That's right. Never nuggets. do that. <laughs> so anyway, I can see why on your vacation you you wouldn't want to learn more about political conflict between various countries. You know, I would. I, it's like I always want to, but sometimes it's like I just have to stop working and enjoy myself. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you would definitely recommend Andorra as a for sure stop on any kind of Spanish and French trip, would you say? Oh, without a doubt, and I think that whole region kind of doesn't get the PR that it deserves. Um, so many people want to go to the Mediterranean coast or, you know, they want to go run with the bulls or go south to Granada or Gibraltar. But this little area in the Pyrenees is just a gem that I think doesn't get enough credit. And I would highly recommend at, at very least just making a stopover for a few nights. Well, you gave a great description. And while we have you on Travel Nuggets as one of my most well-traveled friends, can you give us a couple nuggets on must-dos for 2020 if you're planning your trips around the world? Where where would you suggest people go? Oh, geez, what a great question. Um, let me think about it for a second. Um, okay, so I would say, how many can I have? Well, okay, <laughs> first rule is that they have to be kind of safe. Okay, all right. <laughs> And you can have five. Five. Oh, sweet. All right. Um, okay. So one that I recently kind of stumbled upon and was blown away by uh, is Novi Sad, Serbia. Oh. Um, it is a super hip little town, a little, I guess, city really on the Danube that is just bursting with with culture and like local vibes, amazing, like local beer and food and music and culture and people. And it's a fairly like young city. Um, and it doesn't get any PR at all. Like Serbia in general is one of the least traveled to countries in the Balkans. And then within Serbia, um, you know, people are going to go to Belgrade or, you know, just make a quick stop through, but just like an hour and a half Northwest of Belgrade, Novi Sad, um, give that one a look. Um, well, and I think part of that reason people don't think of it is for at least most of my life, it was a place of conflict and war. Right. So you would say it, at this point, it's pretty calm, safe to go. No yeah, problem. like totally. It, it got such a bad rap, especially for people our age, because we grew up just hearing about the war. Um, but that's not happening anymore. <laughs> and um, while, you know, you're always going to want to be warned to, you know, watch out for pickpockets and stuff like Serbia itself is is incredibly safe compared to what it used to be um 
there's still tension with Kosovo. And if you go to Kosovo, you have to, I, I went to Kosovo on this trip. It was also gorgeous, beautiful. Um, but it's, you have to really like read how to um, understand immigration and things like that. But that's the only like, um, you know, I guess like challenging part that still exists uh, within Serbia itself. Um, so I, you know, I have to pitch Scotland, like the Highlands. Um, it, you know, it's a well-traveled place, um, but getting outside of Glasgow and Edinburgh and just, and just like getting in your car and driving, uh, like through Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, um, I was, I was there and I like accidentally booked a room in a haunted hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, like the coolest like, <laughs> we accidentally like there was plenty of rooms available no no like it was, cheap. It, was it was packed but like again like so I always put myself at the mercy of locals and I say you know where should we go what should what should I do and when I was in Scotland I was making my way up to this little bitty town called Dingwall in in northern Scotland where my family originates um but along the way, I was just saying, you know, I'm going to just ask locals where to go next. And so I would go to one place, enjoy it, and then ask a local where to go next. And when I was in Glasgow, I said, where should I go next? And he said, you need to go up to the Drovers Inn um, near Loch Lomond. And so I just made my way up on a rainy, you know, it's always rainy um, night. And I pulled over and this this inn um, is is a... 315 year old inn that has not been altered in any way (laughs) since then like they pride themselves on it them saying like this is what it looked like 300 years ago um with some obvious like I guess up to code things that have been updated but you know I just had like I had haggis and Scottish beer in their pub and like you know the fireplace was roaring and there was a coat of arms and all these swords and stuff on the wall and I was just like in Scottish heaven and I realized, oh my goodness, it's really late and I've been drinking. I need to just stay here. I hope that it's cheap. And they said, yeah, it's 40 pounds. And um, I was like, oh, that's, that's fantastic. And as I was, they were booking my room in the lobby, I pointed behind the woman at this t-shirt that said, I survived a night at the Drover's Inn. And I was like, <laughs> why does that say that? And she, she laughed and, and I'm like, no, no, seriously, why does it say that? And she's like, well, th- this is a haunted hotel. It's the most, some say it's the most haunted place in Scotland. I said, excuse me, <laughs> and I'm all by myself, and I, <laughs> I go up to this room, I'm, you know, climbing these 320-year-old stairs next to all these old pictures, and, like, everything's creaky, and I go into my room. The only room that was left for the evening was the bridal suite, so it's, like, <laughs> me alone in these massively vaulted ceilings with mirrors, and, and I'm just, like, I'm freaking out, because I, you know, of course had to read all the ghost stories about this place and I'm like cold sweating and it was an incredibly tense night but I did get some sleep and um really really enjoyed the experience in hindsight and you survived and I survived no ghosts this this particular hotel is um known for ghosts uh, you wake up and the ghost is in the bed with you and so <laughs> I was really really terrified but didn't happen and um yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I believe in ghosts anyways, but I think the story is an effort just to to give you a little spook. Well, Scotland has a spooky feel to it, too. Like, Edinburgh is just very gothic. So I I think that sounds like a great adventure. But I do have to, I studied abroad at St. Saint, Saint Andrews. So oh, yeah. 
I have to do a quick plug. If you go to Scotland, definitely stop in St. Andrews. It is the coolest castle town, and it was just a ton of fun and beautiful. Oh, yeah. I, I never made it out east, but... Yeah, people skip it. I don't know why. <laughs> um, so, okay, I get three more, and I'm going to be really quick, so I don't take up too much more of y'all's time. But um, I think you've actually been there, but um, Kurdistan is so incredibly underrated because, again, it's... In Iraq, but you know you don't actually get an Iraqi stamp in your passport when you go. You get a Kurdistan stamp. It you you have to be you know judicious in your planning, but uh, to be able to experience a place like Erbil, um, if only for a few days, is is just wonderful. Um, and you know I I I speak Arabic. I I've got two degrees in Middle Eastern studies. Um, so I'm always pushing places in, in the Middle East, you know, Beirut, um, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, all these places that a lot of people go that, again, I think people kind of miss because they think there's so much conflict. But um, Kurdistan is one of the most peaceful, safe places in the Middle East. And so, uh, you know, if you're feeling extra adventurous, give it a shot. Um, Zanzibar is just off the coast of Tanzania. Uh, we were just there a few months ago after our, our work in the Congo. Some of the world's most beautiful beaches, um, super old historic trading um, island where the Arab world met the African world. It's the birthplace of Swahili. Um, Stone Town is gorgeous, but if you go out east on the island, you kind of get away from all the, the hoopla. Um, and then I guess number five, I would say Estonia. Huh. Uh, That's actually on my bucket list. I'm glad that you brought that up. So sell sell me on Estonia. So here's what you need to do. You should fly into Helsinki, Finland, um, and take in Finland for a few days. And then you hop on a boat. It's their ferries um, that run all the time across, what is that, the Gulf of Finland? Um, and you, it's like a cruise ship atmosphere that you're on. How long, how long was it? I guess it was probably more than an hour and a half. It's probably like three hours, but they think it's this whole hoopla. Like, um, there, there's, you know, there's, there's alcohol and there's entertainment and there's great food and you arrive in Tallinn. And I mean, totally, totally did not expect what Estonia has become. I mean, gorgeous, like just skyscraping churches, um, unbelievable food and beer. I mean, unbelievably good food and beer. Um, there's a there's a bar called Pergo, which is like a play on the word of purgatory because it's just to the rear of one of the largest churches in Estonia. Um, it's underground. It has a, a draft beer selection like you see in very few places, like so, so, so many to choose from. Um, the people are wonderful. Uh, the, the, the old town is massive. Like I, I spent two full days walking around the old like cobblestoned city and didn't see it all. Wait, when you say the old town, what uh, of the capital? Of Tallinn. Yeah. Uh, okay. it, it's one of these towns that like, it's, it's so incredibly like well-preserved and massive and set apart from the rest of the city. Um, and like the tourist vibe has just like grabbed a hold of it and everything has been resurrected. So like all these old, old, old buildings are 
you know, they now have things in them. And you can, as I said, I spent two days and didn't see it all with, you know, various art and music and food and alcohol. And, you know, there's, there's tons of churches. Um, and then I got back in the boat, and went, went back to Finland. So um, yeah, I think Estonia would be my fifth. All right. I love that list. So I have one more question for you before I let you go. Okay. You said that you like to put yourself at the mercy of locals. And yeah. I really like that approach. I tend to kind of map out my trip as well. And then I, I choose never to turn on my phone. Uh, well, people can get online pretty easily. Um, and it does mean you get lost a little bit more, but can you give us your justification or your rationale for why you think it's best to come up with sort of a, a rough outline and then just make your way through by talking to locals and sort of learn as you go. Yeah. I think that, um, if you're always planning and you're always like trying to accomplish when you travel, um, you don't ever really get to experience like your, your focus will always be on checking boxes. And, and to some extent that's necessary, you know, I mean, like, who goes to Paris and doesn't see the Louvre, right? Like, like you, you need to go see the Mona Lisa. Um, but when you, when you let go a little bit and you don't have like everything checked from a travel website, but rather um, engage in, you know, the, the local um, flow, then you get, you get to start actually experiencing like what, what the location um, has to offer. Because in some ways, like the tourist industry is is the same everywhere you go right like you, you may have different flavors and different sounds but like ultimately when you're catering to tourists comfort predictability um safety all these things come first and then culture kind of gets tucked away underneath it you know in a snow globe um but when you allow the movement of the city to to take you then you get to start to experience like um what the uniqueness of each location is. And I, and I still like, you know, I, I love the travel website culture trip. Um, I still will read and read and read about places that I want to see and, you know, what great restaurants and, and beers there are to try. Um, but, you know, I'll use those more as waypoints than destinations, if that makes sense. And sometimes what winds up happening is I, I do something completely different. From that is great. I love that response. Well, thank you so much for coming on Travel Nuggets, and I hope that you will come back. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to be there. This wraps up season one of Travel Nuggets. I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back at the beginning of January with all new episodes. In the meantime, you can stay engaged on the brand new Travel Nuggets podcast Facebook group page. I've named it Travel Nuggets Podcast Community. Please join the group and follow us so you can get all the latest updates. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. Email me at travelnuggetspodcast at gmail.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest for Travel Nuggets, pitch me at that same address. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I'll see you in January. Thank you.